The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And this morning we have reached the end of Jesus' sermon on the second coming that's called the Olivet Discourse. And this is the last great teaching section that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And this was a sermon that was preached two days prior to the crucifixion. It was a private affair that Jesus had with his disciples. And in this sermon, he gave them information about his kingdom and how that it would come to the earth. And I think that it was very important that Jesus would cover this material in these two chapters because of what was going to happen next. In these next two chapters, we find that his enemies plotted against him. His good friend who loved him and or lived with him and, and ate with him and fellowshiped with him betrayed him for a very measly sum of money. The other disciples that had previously declared their love for him and said that they were willing to die for him and even to go to the cross with him if necessary, those friends forsook him and fled. And then this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke of coming in power and in glory, was taken to trial uh, by his own countrymen. He was condemned, he was mocked, and he was cruelly beaten, and he was sent to the execution of a Roman cross. And none of that indicated that he could be a king. His disciples were, were doubtful. They they didn't didn't know uh, when he had risen from the dead, and there were two of them that met him on the road to Emmaus, and not knowing who he was, they had a conversation with him in which they discussed the events of the crucifixion, and those disciples said to Jesus, we thought that it should have been him, it should be he that would deliver us. They thought that he would be the Messiah, but no longer were they sure, and so those words, uh, those statements were made as if there was no hope. And so I think it was very fitting that Christ should speak on the subject of the kingdom as he was nearing the cross. And as we've gone throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen how that it is Matthew's purpose to reveal to us Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah King. Now, as he ended his sermon, the very last thing to determine about his kingdom was who will live there. Who is going into the kingdom? Now, a determination has to be made. Someone has to decide who is in and who is out of his kingdom. And this part of his sermon gives us the answer to that question. I'd like you to stand with me, please. We're going to read this last section. Uh, Matthew 25, verse number 31. The last section of this great sermon, the Olivet Discourse. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory... And all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them the one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand. But the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand. Come ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. 
Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Father, we thank you for... This time we've gathered together today. We thank you, Lord, for your precious blood by which we are saved. Open up our hearts to your gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Are you in or are you out? There's going to be a judgment that decides who is going to go into the kingdom of God. Now, in the context of the passage that we've read context of Matthew chapter 25, the judgment that is discussed here is a judgment that occurs just prior to the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, preceding the millennium, there's going to be seven years of tribulation, and during that time, there will be many people, especially Jews, that will come to understand, they'll recognize that Jesus truly is the Messiah, and they'll come to faith in Him. Millions of those people are going to be martyred because of their belief in Christ. They're victims of the Antichrist who will seek to destroy them and prevent redeemed Israel from receiving the centuries-old promise that God has given that there would be a physical kingdom on the earth for his people. The Antichrist, of course, is the puppet of Satan. It's always been his desire that he would defeat God and to prevent this promised kingdom from happening. But though millions of these people are martyred, there are some of them that survive, and they're going to be alive at the end of the tribulation. They will be in their physical bodies when Christ returns, and then they will be given their promised entrance into the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, in the tribulation, there are going to be millions of lost people, and billions of them are going to be killed uh, some of them are going to survive that time. Billions of them are going to be killed. And so we end up with two types of survivors that come out of the tribulation period. We have those that are saved and those that are lost. And Jesus refers to one group, those that are saved, as the sheep. And he refers to the other group, those that are lost, as the goats. And those are the two groups that are going to appear at this judgment. Now, what I'd like to do today is to expand upon the application of this passage, and that's because the criteria that's used here for judgment is the same that we have in all righteous judgments that God performs. The ones that get into the millennial kingdom go through the same type of judgment that you and I go through today as believers in Jesus Christ, the same thing that Christians experience when they die. 
And likewise, the lost, when they die, they're going to be judged on the very same principles that we find here in this, in this chapter about those who come out of the tribulation period and stand before God in judgment. Now we know that when some people die, they go to heaven. And when some people die, they go to hell. And all of us are judged on the very same principles, the principles of righteousness. And that's what determines which group that you're in, whether you're going into the kingdom of God or whether you are headed for hell. And you see, most people actually believe that they are on their way to heaven. There are very few people that admit that they're lost and they've already judged themselves worthy that they're going to be in the kingdom of God, go into the glories of heaven. And there are even people that are in church that have always thought this. They've always thought that they're on the way there when they actually aren't. And the problem that we have here is that we're not the judge. We're not the ones that decide whether we go in or out. It's God who decides. He's the one who judges. And he always judges according to the principles of his infallible word. Now let me point out a few things before we get to our outline and the main part of the message. First of all is that there is no one who is born a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I have heard even Christians that will say this, or people who think that they're Christians, they will say, I have always been a Christian. I've always believed in God. I've always believed in prayer. I've always been a believer in God. And I can tell you this, that you have not always been a Christian. And if you think so, there's a huge flaw that's in your understanding because it's impossible according to the Bible. Unless you have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, and unless you have realized that you're lost and you're unworthy, unless you have repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ alone to save you from them, you're headed to hell no matter how sincerely you think that you aren't. And this passage will help you to see that there is more to salvation than saying that you believe in God. And secondly, you need to see who the judge is. The judge is Jesus Christ. He's the one that judges on principles of righteousness. He judges according to the holy laws of God. And you're not judged according to what you think is right. You're judged by what God says is right. And I can also tell you this, that what most people think is right is not what God says is right. It's not right in the eyes of God. And then thirdly, if I failed to point this out in previous messages, this is another of the many instances where we have a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. I think what we should have done maybe was to keep a running total of all of these instances because if we did that, we'd have quite a list by now that shows us the many different ways that the Bible tells us that Jesus is Jehovah God. In this passage, he calls himself the Son of Man. And that's an Old Testament prophecy for the uh, prophetic name of God. It's a direct reference out of Daniel 7, verse number 13, which is a prophecy of the return of the Messiah in glory. And when Jesus says that he will sit on the throne of glory, there he declares himself to be the almighty Jehovah God. And then fourthly, I would point out the love of Jesus Christ in this passage. In verse number 41... He said, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And you might very well ask, how does that show the love of Christ? Well, it shows because here he's warning us. There's a great necessity to tell people about judgment because if you love them, you want them to turn from their evil. You want them to come to Christ. You want to warn them to change because if they don't, they're going to face the awful consequences of sin, which is eternal death and the fires of hell. And so in this sermon, Jesus showed his love. Over and over again, he warned about his return. He told people to be ready. He said, take care of this business now. Do something now before it's too late. He warned in the parable of the virgins that the door to the kingdom is going to be shut to unbelievers and that door is never going to be opened. He warned that outside there is darkness, that there is weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And he says here that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. And that means that Christ did not create hell for the purpose of sending people there, but he created man for fellowship with God. And the reason that people go to hell is because of their own stubbornness and their rebellion. And then let me say this as well, that a preacher that doesn't warn people about these very things, as Jesus did, does not love the people. If a preacher won't tell you about hell, and if he won't tell you about judgment because he says, oh, people already feel too bad about things, so I don't want to make things worse for them, that's a preacher that has no clue what it's going to be like for an unbeliever. And I I suspect that he has no clue what it's going to be like for him either. Because the Bible says the one who stands in this pulpit, the one who proclaims the word of God, had better be telling the truth. He better be telling people the truth because he's going to receive the greater condemnation. Now, Jesus loved people, and that's why he warned them. And his last point in this great sermon on the second coming is about judgment. And he's telling people how you can avoid this awful thing of the judgment of God. Now, that's a long introduction, so we better get going here if we're going to make it in time for the evening service. Now, number one then today, number one, what we want to talk about is the signs of salvation. Signs of salvation. How do you know that you are really saved? Now, in the past few weeks, I've been paid two of the highest compliments I think that I've ever received. I know that I don't deserve to be complimented, but it's nice to be appreciated. One person said that I pay strict attention to details. There was another person that said, I'm very precise about doctrine. And so I'll just combine those two things because the details that I'm actually very concerned about are the details of doctrine. I think that it's very important that we know the Bible. I think it's very important that we understand what Scripture teaches, that not only do we see what it says, but we know what it says and we know why we believe what we believe. I think it's very important that we know that. What I... I'm disgusted with what I hate is this lukewarm Christianity that says that all churches are the same. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't make any difference at all. If that's what you think, if, if, if you like mindless Christianity, then Berean Baptist Church is not for you. In Berean Baptist, we teach the Bible. And if you attend for a while, you're going to get some pretty good ideas of definitions of doctrine. And I praise God for this, that I'm able to pastor a church where the people of God want to look into the Word of God and they want to see what is it that we should believe? What, what's right? What's wrong? We want to know what the Bible says. And if you want to get some good insight into that, look at Acts 17 verse 11 and see what the Bereans did. They searched the Scriptures to see if these things are so. 
And so I'm happy that I can pastor a church where the people want to do that. They want to search the scriptures to see what the Bible says. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. We, we do discuss doctrine here. We do teach that. And so I would expect that when you stand before God in the judgment, and should God ask you this question, give me an explanation of why you think that you should be allowed to go into heaven, that you would be able to give him the correct theological, in-depth theological answer to that question. That if he says, why should I allow you to go into heaven? That you would respond to God in this way. Oh, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe in the substitutionary atonement. I believe that Christ's death was the propitiation, the satisfaction to the divine wrath of God against sin. I believe in his blood sacrifice that expiated the guilt of uh, of sin and that by, by faith in that sacrifice I have received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by which I am saved justified, and further, I'm sanctified by his blood and made accepted in the beloved. I believe that none of this is by my works, but it's by the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit who changed my condition of enmity against God and made me willing by the impartation of the divine nature to come to him in repentance and faith. And all of this is because of the divine election of God before the foundation of the world and the eternal covenant of redemption ratified between the triune Godhead. That's all happened before the foundation of the world. That's the answer you would give, isn't it? God said that to you. Would you say that back to him? You've learned that, haven't you? You understand all of that. So after you give the theologically correct answer, let's say he says to you, Let's simplify this just a little bit. What is the evidence that you believe? And I hope there's not a big gulp and people say, I didn't think you were going to ask that. You see, you can know the theology. You can recite the correct answer. But what it's all going to come down to is this. What is the evidence that you believe? Is your faith real? Now, we know what you say, but what's the evidence? And that's where the judgment begins. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. And I know that right here, somebody's going to raise a red flag, and they're going to say, hold on just a minute, preacher. Salvation is not by what you do. The other day, Lino showed me a gospel tract that, had several possibilities on ways to get to heaven. And what you were supposed to do was to pick the correct way, check off the correct way among all those possibilities. And it was obvious that the people that printed this tract did not believe in lordship salvation because they said that the way to heaven is to believe in Jesus as Savior, and they specifically said that salvation is not by what you do. But what they meant to say, uh, and what they actually meant by saying that, is that believing in Christ does not necessarily mean that you must receive him as your Lord. Now, I would dispute that track based upon this passage. Now, certainly the Bible teaches that salvation is not by your works. You can see that in verse number 34, where Jesus said that the sheep were to come and inherit the kingdom that was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And so it's obvious they couldn't have done anything to deserve that inheritance because they hadn't yet been born. So that this is not in dispute. This part is not in dispute. Salvation is not by your works. 
But it's also evident that every person who is a born-again believer will reproduce the works of Christ in his life. Your works are the evidence of your faith. You surrender to Christ as Savior and as Lord, and that means that you're not trusting Christ as an insurance policy against the fires of hell. And what you've done, you've received your insurance policy, and you lay it upon the shelf, and you stop there, and you don't do anything else. No, trusting in Christ, a real faith in Christ, is one of immediate surrender to his lordship. And the evidence that you have believed is those righteous works that you do that are produced in your life. Now, I'd like you to turn to James chapter 2, if you would. Uh, Some suppose that Paul and James were in conflict when they both spoke on the subject of how that we're justified with God. Paul says that it's not by works. James said it is by works. And that seems to be a huge conflict. Until you understand that that Paul speaks of justification by faith and James is speaking of the evidence of justification by faith. And so in other words, James looks at faith on a different level. What kind of faith is it that justifies? And he explains the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 25 in this great passage as he discusses how do we identify saving faith. And this is what he says beginning in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Or literally that means can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? The kind of faith that actually justifies is the kind of faith that produces evidence. Now, what you can do is you can plug Jesus' teachings in verses 34 through 40 of Matthew 25 into James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. You understand what I'm saying? Take what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and plug it in to what James says in James 2, verses 15 to 17. Let's read James again. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead being alone. Now, isn't that what Jesus just said? The evidence that you're saved starts with what faith has done to you. What has your faith made of you? You say that you have believed and you have the theology right about this thing about salvation, but what did your faith do to you? Now, here then is the first sign that you're saved. The first one is service. The first sign is service. Now, do you remember how that we discussed that service is the way that you watch for Jesus? If you're looking for the kingdom to come, then the evidence of your hope of that kingdom is that you will serve the Lord as you're waiting for the Master to return. 
Now, Jesus talked about feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting people that are in prison. And those were very real needs at that time. The poor were everywhere. There was this great division between the haves and the have-nots. And there's an application that can be made here to people in general. But primarily, the application in this passage is the treatment of Christians. And the reason that we know this is because of the context. It's about the treatment of Christians in the tribulation. And a separating factor here is which group was favorable to God's people and which group was not. And that application extends to people of all time. The ones that respect the sheep and take care of the sheep are sheep. And the ones that don't are the goats. They're not going to pay attention and care for God's people. Now, not long after this, uh, Christians in Jerusalem entered into a terrible time of hardship. Because of their belief in Christ, they were thrown out of the temple and out of the synagogues. They lost their jobs. They, They lacked the basic necessities of life, their food, their shelter, and their clothing. And the Christians in Jerusalem banded together and through their efforts, the, the many took care of the needs or the, the, these people took care of the needs of the many. Now, today we don't face too much of that because basically we live in a welfare state. We have, we have a government that takes care of a lot of needs. And so there's none of us that's actually stretched too far by having to sacrifice for other people. And that only accentuates the selfishness of each of us because even without great sacrifice, we don't actually meet the needs of other people. Many times we don't meet the needs of those that are in our own church. Sometimes it's the kindness to visit those that are sick. It's a meal that could be offered for someone who's just returned from the hospital. Sometimes it's to to give a ride to the doctor for somebody that can't get there or to babysit for some children that need that. And some of you, members of the church, you will do that. You'll do those things because you're invested in your church. The church is your family and you're going to take care of the family. You're involved with your church. And that's the evidence that Jesus is speaking of. And so, if God were to ask you, can you give me a list of people that you've helped? Who would be on your list? Is there anyone that's actually on your list? Now, I don't don't want to talk about me because uh, I hate preachers that, that their sermons are filled with the incessant I. So I'm not going to talk about me, but I would like to talk about somebody else. I'd like to talk for just a few minutes about my dad. My dad was a pastor for a long, long time, and pastored a church that barely paid him anything. And if I were to fault my dad's ministry, it would only be in this, that he didn't teach the church well on their responsibility to take care of the pastor. And in one sense, the church missed out on a lot of blessings because they didn't provide for the pastor as they should. And lack of provision is a serious sin against the Lord. But regardless of that, he wasn't paid very much. And so for many years, what he did was to work a secular job as he also pastored the church. But he didn't mind that so much because he really believed that the Lord was blessing him and the money that he was able to receive from from the secular job, he would take and he would give that to people in the church that wouldn't pay him in the first place. My dad suffered a lot to put a roof over our heads. He was tireless. He gave away a lot of money. One time he actually bought the house of a family that was going to lose their home. The dad was a drunk, 
Mom had four kids that she couldn't support, uh, so the dad moved out, and Mom was left there and had no place to go. And so my dad bought their house, and he let them live in the house rent-free until they could get on their feet. And that story actually has a sad ending because the very same people later turned on my dad. But that didn't stop him from doing the same thing over and over again, still giving money to people to help them. I remember that when I was young, my dad and mom would take poor kids into our house when their parents couldn't, into our house when their parents couldn't feed them. Uh, we lived more than 50 miles away from the church, and back in those days, these were winding country roads that we had to travel. And so it was about an hour and a half to church each way. And I can remember this one particular time that there were some very, very poor people in the church, and the kids were starving, and the kids were, uh, it, it was just a really bad situation. So we put, took those kids and put them into the car, and um, they stunk so bad that in the middle of the winter in Kentucky, we had to roll the windows down and drive for that 50 miles for an hour and a half in the cold just so we could stand to be in the car with them. And my mom took those kids and she put them into the bathtub and she cleaned them up and we took care of those kids until their parents could come and, and take care of them. My mom and dad did things like that. And I know that when my dad stands in judgment that he's going to have the right theological answer to that question. But I strongly suspect that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to him, Let, let's just dispense with the theological question. I've already seen the evidence. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now the evidence is service. And the Lord is going to say, do you have any? Is there anybody that you helped? Is there any service? Is there anything you sacrificed? And maybe there's not somebody that God puts into your way every single day. Maybe it's not necessary for you to, to feed someone or to clothe them. But what if God should ask you this? What did you give? What did you give to your church? Did you spend all of your money on yourself? What did you give to help the Lord's work to go on? Now, going back to those Christians in Jerusalem, Paul applauded churches in Macedonia because even though they were going through hardships of their own, they were willing to get together and gather up a generous offering to send by Paul for the relief of these poor saints that were in Jerusalem. And so Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, or we want you to know about the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, and beyond their power they are willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship and the ministering to the saints. Now there Paul is saying that these poor saints in Jerusalem, they, in Macedonia rather, they have their own troubles, they have their own problems, they're, they're, they're in a trial of affliction themselves, and yet they impress this upon us. They insisted that we take this offering to help poor saints that are in Jerusalem. And Paul says, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. First they gave their own selves to the Lord. And folks, whenever that happens, what always follows is acts of kindness to other people. And if you don't have acts of kindness that you perform for other people, then you have not yet given yourself to the Lord. Do you understand that? This is what Jesus is talking about. You did this to them. 
because you, or you did this to me because you did it to them. And you say, well, how? How did you do it? How did you do it to Christ? And the way that this happens is because people who are believers in Christ are in Christ. They represent Him. We're so close to Him that anything that we do for a fellow Christian is, it's as if Jesus was here and we handed Him a piece of bread and we gave Him a drink of water. We put shoes on His feet and we put a shirt on His back. If you've done it for one of God's people, you've done it to Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the passage. What have you done? What is the evidence of your service? Now, secondly, let me give you another sign of salvation, and that is humility. Now, do you see another way that we know that salvation is not by our works? These people were not counting up the things that they did. They weren't actually keeping a list of the things they did. They didn't walk around and say, well, look what I did today. If they thought that they could be saved by what they did, then they would have whipped out their list when the Lord came calling, and they would say, check it out. Here's the list of all the things that I've done. But this was so natural that they didn't even realize they'd done anything. They wanted to know, when did we do these things? They never gave them a second thought. They just worked. They just helped. That was second nature to them. Because after all, aren't Christians different people? Hasn't something happened to us that makes us different from the world? Isn't this what Christians do? And that's how you tell if you're a Christian. Working for Christ and having the right spirit, that's just the way that you live. And so they didn't say, well, Lord, you should let me into heaven because I've done all of this great stuff. But a non-Christian says exactly that, doesn't he? You stop a person on the street and you say, are you going to heaven? And they say, oh, of course, I'm a pretty good person. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Not a Christian. It's more like this. Who, me? I've never done enough. I fall so far short of the glory of God, I am undeserving. I cannot go in. And the only reason that I could ever go in is because of what you have done for me, Lord. But nevertheless, Jesus is still looking for that evidence. And you know something? He always finds evidence in those that are truly his. And so if you're a person that throws out his chest and you say, Look what I've done. Here's the list of the souls that I've won for Jesus. Then you don't really have the true humility of the child of God. This is what we find is the real attitude, Luke 17. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That is humility. Thirdly, we have this sign of salvation, love. All of these things are done for the brethren and they're examples of love. You just do it because you love people. You take care of their physical needs. This is what John said in John 3, 1 John 3, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And you see what John is saying? It's not what you say, it's what you do. What you say must be backed up by what you do. John knew what the Lord meant when Jesus said, 
in John 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, John knew that to fulfill that command, there has to be a demonstration. How, how are you to prove your love for the people that are in your church? You take care of them. Where there's a need, you step up and you fill the need. Listen to Paul. He said, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What law of Christ? What Jesus said in John 13, love one another. And so we can look at this passage and we can think about the general care of mankind. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. There are other places where he addresses that. Here he's talking about, what did you do for my servants? What did you do for my people? It's about those that have survived the tribulation. But the judgment's the same for all of us. And you need to remember that. When you're mean and you're cruel and you're spiteful to those that are in your church, no matter what they've done to you, then you don't, you don't show signs of salvation. Christ might well say to you, depart from me into the fires prepared for the devil and his angels. And how do I say that? I say it because we have to consider what Christ did. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when, and died for us when we hated him. He saved us when we were in disobedience. And so what right do we have to mistreat those for whom Christ died, no matter what they've done to us? We're never going to reach the level of what was done to Christ. So how could we harm our brother? How could we hate our brother? How could we ignore our brother? How could we talk against our brother, gossip against our brother, say, I don't want to have anything to do with you, split up on different sides of the auditorium? How do we do that? You can't if you're a true Christian. You can't if you love Christ. Because when you do that to someone he's died for, someone he's saved, then you've done that to him. And you need to remember that. So these are real signs of salvation. Christ might well ask you, what do you know? I know that he's going to ask, what did you do? Now let's go on. You just need to stick with me just a little bit longer because there's another side to this. And number two is the separation of sinners. And don't worry, it's not going to take as long as the first part. Remember what I said before. You, you can recognize the signs of someone who knows Christ, and you can recognize the signs of someone who doesn't know Christ. You just, just flip things around. No service, no humility, no love. And when those are absent, those people are going to be absent from the kingdom of God. Now, there are a lot of people that say, oh, I decided for Christ. I, I decided that I would become a Christian. They got convicted at a revival. They heard a sermon in the church. They got scared about going to hell. And so they went forward and they said, I need Jesus to keep me out of hell. But that was it. There wasn't anything else. They made a decision, but there wasn't anything else that went along with that. There was no lordship of Christ. They may have got the Savior as their get-out-of-jail-free card, and, and the preacher says to them, well, that's okay, that's good enough. You've made your decision so you can enter the kingdom that's prepared for you. And by the way, most of them that teach those kinds of things don't even actually believe that there was a kingdom prepared for prepared people from the foundation of the world. They don't actually even believe that. But do you know the problem with this? The preacher is not the judge. 
There are preachers that like to count heads. They like to count professions. They don't believe in lordship salvation, so they never wait to see if there's any evidence. They don't care about the evidence because they've got their statistic and they've already told the person that they're okay because you have decided. But Jesus says, I want the evidence. James said, faith without works is dead. And so that kind of faith that never produces evidence is not real saving faith. Now, let's quickly note two observations about sins that separate the sheep from the goats. First are sins of commission. Now, do you know what sins of commission are? Are you ready for this? We're very precise about doctrine, so make sure you write this down. Sins of commission are sins that you commit. That's that's astounding piece of theology, isn't it? They are sins that you commit. Do you steal? Do you kill? Do you sleep with somebody else's husband or wife? Do you lie? Those are sins of commission. Now, would you notice, though, that from verse number 42 down to verse number 45, there are no sins of commission. Jesus didn't say, now, here's the reason that you're not going into the kingdom. You're a thief. You are a liar. You are a murderer. You're an adulterer. How many people think that they're going to heaven because they didn't do anything on that list? They're, they're just pretty good people. They've stayed away from the big ones. You know what the big ones are? Well, that's the ones you find in the Ten Commandments, the big ones, you know. They're, they're on that list of commandments. And here Jesus doesn't mention any of those sins of commission. And by the way, these are people that survived the tribulations. They've actually done all the things that are the big ones. They've actually committed all those things. But Jesus never brought those up. He doesn't say that your problem is the sins of commission, but the problem is these other sins, and these are the sins of omission. Now, here's your theology lesson today. Sins of omission are things that you should do, but you don't do. The evidence that you are a Christian may not be in the things that you do or you don't do. I mean, would you say that David was not a Christian because he committed adultery? Would you say David's not a Christian because he committed murder? And those are pretty compelling pieces of evidence against him, aren't they? Is that what is that determines that? David is not a Christian? Now, my daughter Clarissa is studying the life of David and she would write me, on the, in the mornings when she was doing her devotions, I'd be doing mine, she'd be doing hers, and she'd send me a text. And she was just all bent out of shape about David's problem with polygamy. And she couldn't understand how David could have a heart for God and how that God would allow David to have all these different wives. That's just a woman thing, I think. But he could, she couldn't understand all that. And so she was upset about that. And so she would write me about, how do I explain David's polygamy? Well, based on those kinds of things, we might say, well, David couldn't be a Christian at all. But that's not what Jesus says here. Now, we, we might condemn David or some other Christian or anyone for that matter, and we need to realize we're no better. And if you don't understand that, go to Matthew chapter 5, read that again. We're all guilty of these very same sins that David committed. Now, those were very serious sins, but what God can do, he can forgive you of what you've done. None of us is better than David. Now, the basis here is not what they did, but what they didn't do. 
There was no service. There's no humility. There's no love. There's no concern. And the absence of that proved that they were not Christians. And why? Because faith without works is dead, being alone. Now, we notice that there are two parts to this. Some say, well, I must be okay. I helped to build a a house with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, I must be okay because I serve at the homeless shelter. I have to be okay because I gave five bucks to that guy standing on the street corner with a cardboard sign. And so I should be okay. No, there also has to be faith. Faith has to be in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith in him is the reason that you do these things. And your works are the evidence of that faith. And if that faith is not there, it doesn't make any difference how many things that you do. You're not a child of God. None of it amounts to anything. So this leaves us one more question. What is the biggest sin of omission? What is the worst sin? Now, if you're in the fundamentals class, don't say it out loud. Because a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about this very same subject, and I let the cat out of the bag. And you know that I prefer cats in the bag, especially plastic ones with rubber bands around the top. That's why I'd rather keep it. So um, don't answer this. What, what is the worst sin? What is the worst sin? It's not a sin of commission. It is a sin of omission. It is not believing in Jesus Christ. That is the worst sin of all. It's not what you did. It's what you didn't do. And so you see, you really do have to know the answer to the theological question. You do have to know who Jesus is. You do have to believe in him as the son of God. You do have to believe in him as Savior and Lord. And you must be able to answer this question. What is the evidence of your belief? Now, here's our last thought. A day of separation is coming. Verse number 34 says that believers are going to go into the kingdom prepared by the Father from the foundation of the world. They're blessed forever. Verse number 41 says that the other group, the sinners, the goats, they're going to go into everlasting fire. They're going to join their father, the devil, and his demons. And in verse number 46, Jesus states that separation once again. He says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous in a life eternal. Are you having a hard time making up your mind which of those groups you want to be in? Well, just listen for just a minute. Just do nothing. Just, just don't do anything. And that'll put you into the first group of Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Just don't do anything. Now, the Lordship Salvation will hear me say that. People that are against that, they'll hear me say that. And they'll say, but that isn't what Jesus said. That isn't what Jesus said. Well, Jesus said, you do nothing. You did nothing. So depart into hell. I'm just following what he says. You didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't do all these things. So depart into hell. Now, if you want to get into the second group of verse 46, you have to do something. And I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about believing in Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him as Lord and Savior, and then you really will do something. You you will serve him. You will be humble. You'll love your neighbor 
as yourself. All the evidence of what it really is to be a Christian is going to be there. If you are a true believer, if you have the kind of saving faith that James talks about in James 2, if you have that, there will be evidence. If there is no evidence, then you better get on your knees today and you better stop praying, who's on my list? What did I do? How can I show that I'm actually a Christian? If God asks me that question, what did you do? Can you give me the evidence? Are you going to have anything to present to him at all? And if you don't, you might have the right theological answer. But if you don't have the evidence that you believed, you're not going into the kingdom of God. So you have to back up what you say. What do you know? What do you say? It has to be backed up by what you do. That shows the evidence that faith has stuck in your heart and has actually done something to you. Think about that today. You're a Christian. You say you're a Christian sitting in this group. You say, oh, I've been a Christian for a long, long time. But you're sitting there without anything on that list that says, I've helped somebody. I've done something. I've showed the works of Jesus Christ in my life. You need that if you're going to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, the warnings that he's given us in this passage that we must turn from our unbelief, we must receive you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, we know this, that when this has happened, when we truly have believed, that that evidence will come shining forth. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to some heart today. Help us all to do what Paul said, to examine ourselves to really check out our salvation. Is it really real? And I pray, Lord, you'd help us all to look into this matter very carefully. One day it's going to be too late, and that's what Jesus warns us about. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.